uh, you know, first of all, we had his his problem. Uh, the prophet's problem was everything around him was corrupt and evil. And that's uh, something we're seeing in our society today. I mean, we just uh, uh, had the second uh, impeachment trial against uh, former President Trump, and uh, he was acquitted once again. Uh, but it was a sham. It was uh, basically impeachment was not designed for people who were no longer in office. It was a waste of time and of the American taxpayers' money, and it was time for them to get about the business of trying to solve problems. And right, all I can see so far is creating more problems. But that was what Habakkuk saw. He saw corruption everywhere around him, and it greatly disturbed him and disturbed his peace. And uh, then... Uh, God says, well, I'm sending the Chaldeans to, to judge you, and Habakkuk objected again. And so Habakkuk actually starts with, with him complaining to God or objecting to the way God does things. But in chapter 3, we're going to see a shift to where he's going to begin to praise God. And once again, just to show you the timeline and where we're at, it begins about 607 B.C., so it's after Israel has been conquered by Assyria, but prior to the time uh, that King Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon conquers Judah and takes uh, exiles captive in 586 B.C. So, again, where we've been, his first protest is, God, why aren't you doing anything about all the evil corruption going on around me and my own nation? And then a second protest after God says, well, I'm sending the Chaldeans, is God, how can you use these wicked Chaldeans, or really the Babylonians, the terms are interchangeable, how can you use them to persecute your people uh, who are not nearly as wicked as these barbarians? You know, how can you use somebody even more wicked than we are to come and judge us? And I, I wonder if we're not in this state in America where there's a, a group of people who uh, deny the Lord and who have a different worldview than we have as Christians uh, that now are become the ruling power and in many ways are seeking to take away our freedoms to worship and our freedoms to bear arms and our freedoms for a lot of other things. And you think, how can you use people like that to come and judge us? But we have to understand that, that God isn't fair. Fair means what we think is right, but he is just. In other words, anything that God does is just and righteous. It's just that we don't really understand his plans. Well, that was Habakkuk chapter 1. In Habakkuk chapter 2, God answers Habakkuk by giving a poetic, it's written in poetry, uh, a long uh, series of woes. Woe unto the person that does this, this, and this. We went through that last week. There were five different categories of uh, things for which God was going to judge uh, the wicked Chaldeans, and, and uh, uh, so he's going to use the Chaldeans, but he's also going to judge them. But even in this series of woes, there are these little moments. In fact, is there were five woes last week, and right in the middle of number three, which is the, the centerpiece of those five woes, is, is a note of praise to the eternal God. So even when we see woeful judgment coming, uh, God's sovereign powers in the midst of that. But Habakkuk basically through chapters one and two feels very confused. He's like, God, I don't quite understand your ways. I don't quite understand uh, what's what's going on here. Um, and the fact is, is that we had a reminder last week that false gods simply 
uh, cannot help. Uh, so I, I took you on a little bit of a photographic tour uh, through Taiwan, showing people that are still worshiping false gods today. But a false god doesn't mean it has to be a, an idol made out of wood or an image that's made out of metal. Uh, but uh, it can be anything that takes the place of God in our hearts, whether it's money, fame, uh, personalities, a particular kind of entertainment, etc. All of these are are gods. And you'll remember these pictures from last week of the heavenly mother, one with a God uh, on one side of her that can see for a thousand miles, and the other with a God on the other side where that can hear for a thousand miles. And these two gods are supposed to uh, protect her because they could see or hear uh, for a thousand gods. And it's kind of stupid that you know anyone would worship uh, a gods that needed other gods to protect them or you know, the the Chinese god Guangdong, who's the god of business, that they would uh, pray to him for their financial prosperity. Um, and we think that's so stupid. And yet we have just as valid images and icons in our own life that we worship. So we want to get to the text. Uh, Habakkuk to me is starting, startlingly, startlingly, there we go, uh, uh, relevant for today. So Let's look, first of all, at the petitions of Habakkuk in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3. And it says, A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to Shigenoth. O Yahweh, I have heard the report of you. O Yahweh, I stand in awe of your works. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, may you remember to show compassion. Um, a slightly different uh, meaning I want to bring out of the King James. It says, uh, it starts out the same way, a prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet upon Shig, you know, O Lord, I've heard thy speech and was afraid. Uh, so the Lexham English Bible says, I stand in awe, uh, but he here it says he was afraid, and, and both are correct translations. Both convey the idea uh, well. To be in awe of something is to be a little afraid of it because it's a little overwhelming. Um, and so we, we're going to see this idea brought out further. But again, this is where Habakkuk is no longer protesting against God. He had twice protested to God. First of all, God, why aren't you doing anything about the evil that's all around me? And secondly, how can you use such wicked people to accomplish your will? Uh, but there's no more protesting any longer. Habakkuk offers a, a simple uh, petition uh, to the Lord. And uh, and. It, this, first of all, it says it's upon Shigianoth. Now, uh, this is a pretty irregular inscription, but it occurs at the beginning of Psalm 7, where it says the Shigion of David, which he sang to Yahweh on account of Cush, a Benjaminite. Um, this is a musical notation that's usually put at the start of a psalm. And you'll, if you look at the psalms, you'll see things like a mictum of David. A mictum would be a song that required a great degree of technical skill to play. Uh, a shigion means a song with an irregular beat. It, come, it comes from a root verb that means to, to reel and to fro. And it was often used when there was a a triumph or a victory, and there's just uh, ecstasy about the uh, celebration and about the victory that had been won. And in this case, uh, Habakkuk is is being ecstatic as he focuses his attention on the majesty of God. Now, uh, I call this the prophet's awful reaction. I don't mean awful, but awful. Um, you, you notice that he, he says, I stand in awe of your works. I like that particular translation from the Lexham English Bible. Uh, 
Habakkuk has heard about God's plan to discipline Judah, and then he heard about God's plan to later destroy Babylon after he uses them to discipline Judah. And he's just filled it all at the awesome sovereignty of God, that God is so sovereign, he can use a people who don't even acknowledge his existence, who defy him, who would mock him, but he uses them to accomplish his will. And, and God has plans that are really beyond human understanding. And he has a preeminence, meaning he is first in everything. He's first above creation. He's first above in time. He's first in everything. And really that preeminence is beyond our comprehension. But Habakkuk says, you know, I've heard a report of you and I stand in awe. Or the King James says, I've heard of you and I was afraid. Uh, so there, there's a sense in which Habakkuk, now that he's heard God, reveal his plan and reveal his will. Uh, it's like his bottom jaw drops to the ground, hanging his mouth open, and and he his knees begin to shake uh, before the awesome and, and mighty God. Now, Habakkuk decides to ask two things of God. And the first thing he asks, he, he says, in the midst of years, revive it. In the midst of years, make it known. Uh, he says, I stand in awe of your works in the midst of the years. Revive it. In the midst of years, make it known. Basically saying, God, I, I want to see something fresh, a fresh display or a fresh manifestation of your power. Uh, this could be translated, renew your deeds, and then it, and, and it would also mean, and do it now. Uh, in the midst of years means our time. In other words, Habakkuk knew that God was going to keep his promise. He knew that uh, that uh, this Judah would be disciplined, but he also knew that God would destroy the Babylonians. And what he wanted, he's basically saying, God, can you do it in my time? I want to see it come to pass. Now, there are a lot of promises in Scripture that God's made that have not yet been fulfilled. Now, I will say that God has never yet failed to fulfill a promise, and so many have been fulfilled, and so many prophecies have been fulfilled. And we know that uh, Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said and shall he not do it? Or has he spoken and shall he not make it good? When God says something, you can take it to the bank, as uh, Brother Steve is fond of saying. Uh, so basically he says, you know, I know you're going to do it. But but God, I really kind of wish you'd do it in my lifetime. I wish you could do it where I could see it. I'd like to see your power now. And, you know, I think maybe we need to start thinking about praying more like this. Uh, that, uh, yeah, God, we what we want to do is we want to see you put your power on display in our church now. We want to see you regrow the church now. We want to see you uh, glorify yourself in our nation now. Uh, so basically, he's heard God's plan, and he says, God, I want you to get on with it. Uh, I, I want to see it in my lifetime, and I, I'd like to see that as a prompt fulfillment. And then his second uh, petition comes on the heels of the first one. He says, in wrath, may you remember to show compassion. Uh, in other words, God is about to vent his wrath upon uh, the nation of Judah because of their lack of faithfulness to him. But then he's going to vent his wrath upon the unrepentant and wicked Babylon. And he says, while you're showing your wrath, and God, there's no question that your wrath is correct, and no question that it's just and right. But while you're doing that, will you please pardon and forgive those who repent. May you remember to show compassion. 
And see, we don't really have to worry about this. It is it is consistent with God's character that he is always showing his love at the same time that he is showing his wrath. Uh, both are always there. But, uh, you know, from a human perspective, I think we tend to, uh, it's it's hard for us as humans to show compassion at the same time that that maybe we're angry about something, but God is capable of doing so. But so he, he's basically just saying from his human perspective, God, while you're showing your might, would you also put your mercy on display? Would people repent? Would they turn to you? And would you bless them for their return? Now, we're going to get to verses 8 and 12 next week uh, in our study of Habakkuk, but God's wrath is mentioned there too. Now, the wrath of man is never righteous. So we, you hear a lot of people talk about, oh, well, that was righteous indignation talking, or, you know, well, I was, I was mad, but it was righteous indignation. Well, that's not what scripture says. Scripture says that the wrath of man does not work the righteousness of God, or as the Lexham English Bible says, human anger does not accomplish the righteousness of God. Uh, and it doesn't give any exceptions. And fact is, uh, Paul told the Ephesians, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and amor, clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. He doesn't say all except for what's righteous. Uh, and I've heard preachers preach about, you know, that there's a difference between being angry and being righteously angry. Uh, I'm sorry, if you're human, you cannot be righteously angry. I think we need to be grieved, but let's leave anger and vengeance to God. Uh, the purpose of anger is vengeance, and uh, God can do that righteously. You and I cannot, uh, as the sign on my door at the church says, anger is one letter short of danger. Uh, but God's wrath is just and it's righteous, and it glorifies his sovereignty. And it's a little bit like going into uh, a jewelry store, and there's a jewelry store here that whenever I need I had to go in there last week because uh, I needed a new watch band for the watch that the church gave me on my, I think it was my 30th anniversary in the ministry, and I've uh, now been in the ministry for over 40 years. And uh, that that watch band, I'd had it fixed once or twice, and it just kept falling apart, so went and got a new band on it. But when you go into the jewelry store, if you look in the glass cases, you'll notice that they have a, a dark black or sometimes a dark brown cloth underneath the display of their rings and they always have these bright lights shining down in the glass cases so that the sparkling of the diamonds or the sparkling of the sapphires or the rubies or the emeralds is that much more spectacular against that backdrop of the the black velvet cloth at the bottom of the display cases and and a good jeweler if he takes out something for you to look at will take out a piece of uh, black velvet or something and lay it on top of the glass counter and then put the ring on top of that so that as you put that on your finger and you hold it underneath the light that the contrast between the, the dark background and the sparkling of the ring is ever more apparent to you. It's just good salesmanship. Well, in the same way, God's wrath against the ungodly and against uh, ungodliness makes his mercy and his loving kindness sparkle in a far uh, greater way. And so that is that that is the idea that is being conveyed to us here is just that God has a way that he is uh, he can show his wrath, but it at the same time highlights uh, his mercy. So Habakkuk then, after these two short petitions, which, you know, basically is God, get on with it. I want to see your power displayed. And God, please remember to show mercy in the midst of your wrath. 
Habakkuk begins what is probably one of the most beautiful passages of praise recorded in Scripture anywhere. And he, first of all, starts by remembering what God did for Israel and leading them out of the land of Egypt. Now, I find this remarkable because he's remembering deeds that have happened centuries before his time. But he looks at how God delivered Israel from Egypt and uses that to bolster his confidence that God is going to deliver his people from Babylon in the same way, that he'll lead them out of Babylon, that they won't be in captivity indefinitely to Babylon. And, of course, we know that they were in captivity in Babylon for for several decades, but then they were in fact, delivered. So there's this idea that we need to we need to kind of have a book of remembrance of our own. How do we remember these things? Well, in, in the case of the Israelites leaving Egypt, that was recorded in the in the Pentateuch and the five books of Moses. And Habakkuk would have been familiar with those books, and he knew these things. And but I wonder if we don't need to start thinking about building a book of remembrance for future generations so that they can know the faithful acts of God. Just write down the stories or pass on the stories verbally of what God has done for you. Um, it, it's interesting. There's a couple mentions I found of a book of remembrance in Exodus 17, 14. It says, and the Lord said unto Moses, write this for a memorial or, or for a remembrance in a book and rehearse it in the years of Joshua. Now, by the way, this is the same word memorial that is used uh, when the children of Israel told to keep the Passover for a memorial annually to remember the deliverance uh, from Egypt. It's the same word that Jesus used with his disciples when he would have told them, uh, as often as you uh, eat this bread and drink this cup, do it in remembrance or for a memorial to me. It's why the Lord's Supper is not a sacrament uh, that's meant to do anything to us it is a memorial, and it's a sacred memorial. And God tells, tells us, you've got to treat it right or else I'm going to judge you. you know, many of the Corinthians were sick, and some even died for taking of the Lord's Supper unworthily. But it is meant to be not a sacrament that imparts anything to the user, but it is a memorial uh, in the same way, or it's a in something done in remembrance. And then he says, you know, Moses, not only do you need to write this in a book, but you need to rehearse it in the ears of Joshua. In other words, I need you to make sure Joshua understands what has happened here, that you would not only write down what has happened, but you would make sure he knows, because if he's going to lead the next generation of Israelites faithfully uh, after you're gone, then he needs to understand the things that I have done. Uh, in Malachi, it says, then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another. So in other words, if you fear the Lord, you talk with one another about what the Lord has done in your life. It says, and the Lord hearkened it and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord and that thought upon his name. Uh, so I don't know if you've ever started to do this, but I think it's a great idea if you would write down or record or at least talk about with your progeny and with your other relatives, the things that God has done for you. Tell them some of the stories of how God uh, supernaturally answered prayer. I know, I know I've written down the long account of how uh, the Lord brought my wife and I together because that was a supernatural thing. And I've known uh, supernaturally that that I, I found the one woman that God had for me uh, in my life and that it was a God thing. I knew I was supposed to marry her before I was even sure if I liked her or not. Uh, so it's we need a book of remembrance, and I want to encourage you to think about 
doing that, just write down and just keep a prayer journal and write down your answers to prayer. That'd be great. Well, he's going to uh, give us some ideas of different things for which we can praise God. And the first one he does is he's remembering God coming and delivering Israel out of Egypt is he says, you know, praise God for his arrival. He says, God came from Timon and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His glory covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. Now, Paran is a wilderness area that's enclosed by Palestine on the north, uh, the Arab Valley on the east, the Sinai Desert on the south, and Etham on the west. So in other words, Mount Sinai is in the middle of this wilderness of uh, Paran, and there's a mountain range of Paran, and Sinai is one of the mountains in that mountain range. Uh, Timon is uh, actually a desert oasis in Edom, but it can also represent the entire region south of the Dead Sea. Uh, Moses called that uh, area Seir. You'll also see that in Joshua talks about the people of Mount Seir, and it's part of the mountainous region referred to as Taman. And so really this is a, a, a an area really to the north of Judah, uh, where God's law was given, and uh, it was a large area, and he says he, all the way from the, the Edomite city of Teman to Mount Sinai, basically, uh, you, could, you could feel and you could sense and you could hear uh, the presence of God when he descended upon the mountain. It's also interesting to me that uh, God's appearance to Moses uh, was in the region south of Judah, while the Babylonians, uh, we find out in 586 BC, invade Judah from the north. And uh, it's kind of like there's a, an army comes from one direction, but uh, that, that they had found a recluse, or, or excuse me, they had found uh, a safe place, a refuge uh, in the southern part of Judah. Uh, and all of God's real wonders while they were wandering through the wilderness happened in that southern uh, part of the people as he led, uh, of the areas he led his people in the promised land. Now, something unusual about this verse that I don't really find anywhere else in scripture, I don't really remember anywhere else in scripture. Normally, we see the word God, and when, as you see in this verse, verse three, it's the Hebrew word Elohim, which uh, is plural. Uh, so in in uh, Hebrew, you have three forms of nouns. You have singular nouns, meaning just one. You have dual nouns, D-U-A-L, dual nouns, which mean two. And then you have uh, plural nouns, which mean three or more. So when you hear the name Elohim, it means that there are three or more. In this case, it re is a reference to the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But in this particular verse, he uses the singular word Eloah, which instead of Elohim, it's Eloah, which is talking about God in a singular way. He's talking about his unity as the deliverer. So there is one deliverer, and it's it's God, and it's just an unusual term uh, for, for them to use, or for Habakkuk to use for God. He's talking about his unity. And he's basically saying, just as God came down to Mount Sinai to give his covenant with Israel, he's going to come to liberate Judah from the hands of Chaldeans in the same way. So praise him for his arrival when, when he comes. And then we see this word that you see in the Psalms a lot, and of course, uh, Chris and Desiree have a, a daughter by this name, and I think it's a beautiful name. Um, but it's the word Selah. Uh, now, we've always known, uh, most of us have, they've studied the Bible at any length of time, that Selah is a word 
inject it into scripture passages to make you stop what you just are doing and reread what you just read. In other words, you'll see a verse in Psalms and then it'll have this word Selah and we were taught early on when you see that word, go back and reread what you just read and really ponder it, pay attention to it. It's like a rest or a musical interlude. So if it's a psalm and it was being sung, you'd come across this word, you might stop playing for a minute and there'd be silence while you meditated on what was just happening or there'd be a musical interlude without any new words while you thought about what had just been said. And it's used 71 times in the book of Psalms. Uh, There's 71 times where people are told, okay, shut up and think about what you just did. But Selah actually comes from a Hebrew verb. Every Every word in Hebrew pretty much goes back to a three-letter uh, verb. All, all verbs in, in Hebrew have a three-letter root, which is interesting because there's three persons to the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the Hebrew verb means to exalt or to lift up. So uh, potentially the word selah can mean to pause so that you can change keys to a higher key or increase the volume. So if you're singing a song, you might pause the song for a moment you would uh, maybe change, do a key change uh, to a different key, uh, raise it up a pitch, uh, or just uh, sing it louder. Uh, it can also mean to reflect on what has been sung and to exalt the Lord in praise. And it can also mean just to lift up certain instruments for something like a trumpet fanfare. In other words, you might pause, stop the singing, and then there's a moment of silence, and then suddenly there's just fanfare on trumpets. But whatever it's meaning in Habakkuk 3.3, there is the, the, a, an obvious break that was intended. It's kind of like he's saying, God arrives. Now, shut up for just a minute and meditate on the presence of God and think about how awesome he is. And then somebody blow the trumpets and sound a fanfare and, fanfare, and then praises glory. Uh, I, I think if you really look at what's happening in the beginning of Habakkuk 3.3, you're seeing that Habakkuk really now has a vision of the majesty and power of God, and he's just awestruck by it. And he's thinking about God on top of Mount Sinai, and, and he realizes you need to just pause in silent wonder of that. And then we need to just praise give praise for God's appearance. Look what it says in verses three, the second half of verse three, three, all the way through verse seven. His glory covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise and his brightness was as the light. He had horns coming out of his hand. Now, I'm going to come back to that word horns in a minute because it's an unusual word and I'm going to give you an unusual art lesson about that word with a picture. So stay tuned. He said he had horns coming out of his hand and there was the hiding of his power. Before him went the pestilence, and burning coals went forth at his feet. He stood and measured the earth. He beheld and drove asunder the nations, and the everlasting mountains were scattered. The perpetual hills did bow. In other words, these hills that have been there since the beginning of time bowed before God. His ways are everlasting. I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction, and the curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Now, let's, let's break down that passage a little bit. First of all, he says, when God descended on Mount Sinai, there was an astonishing splendor, and it's like an awesome thunderstorm. His glory covered the heavens, and so much so that Habakkuk says that the sun appeared pale in comparison. Now, that's a pretty big statement, especially if you've ever been out at noon on a a uh, hot summer's day in West Texas, you know how bright the sun can be. Or if you've been out 
uh, in the winter and there's snow on the ground and the sun shining down on it. And, and it's like you can't escape the brightness because it's reflected off of the snow. But the sun just appeared pale in comparison to the glory of God. Think about that. You're at Mount Sinai and suddenly the sky turns so bright that it's easier to look at the sun than it is to look at the top of Mount Sinai. And then it says, his praise filled the earth. I think he's talking here about that there were thunderings. We know from scripture that at the top of Mount Sinai, there were thunderings. They were so loud that it caused the entire mountains to shake and caused rocks to be broken in pieces. And they were heard by the people while Moses spoke with God. And they were not only heard in the skies, but the entire earth rattled. This is the astonishing splendor of God. Now, I, I just have to pause for a minute at this idea that the sun appeared pale in comparison, because the sun's kind of a big deal. Uh, it's a really big deal, in fact. You could fit 1.3 million Earths inside the sun if the sun were a hollow ball. If you look at add up the mass of all the planets and all the moons in our solar system, the sun accounts for 99.86, I didn't give all the digits there, but it's 99.86% of the total mass of our solar system is just the sun. The surface temperature is 10,300 degrees Fahrenheit or around 5,500 degrees centigrade. The mass of the sun is some 333,000 times more than the mass of the earth. The diameters uh, uh, actually somewhere between 109 and 110 times uh, that uh, of the Earth. Uh, another little interesting factoid, not on your screen here, is that the sun is the most perfect sphere of all of creation. It's the closest we come to a perfect ball. In fact, it, it, you think about this. It is uh, could hold 1.3 million Earths. It's 110 times the diameter of the Earth. And yet, there's only a 10-kilometer difference between the, the top, uh, if there were a north pole of the sun, between the north and south pole, and between the east and west poles. There's only a 10-kilometer difference. It's the most perfect sphere that we've ever observed in nature. It's traveling at 220 kilometers per second. Uh, it's around 24 to 26,000 light years from the center of the galaxy. Uh, it, it's, uh, it takes about eight minutes for light to reach from the sun uh, to the earth, even though that light is traveling at over 186,000 miles. It's 186,232 miles per second, and it still takes eight minutes for the light to get here. Um, and the distance between the earth and the sun changes occasionally, which is why we get different seasons. Uh, it rotates in the opposite direction of the Earth. So our Earth is turning one direction. The sun is turning the opposite direction, and that's uh, called a differential rotation. It has a powerful magnetic field, and that magnetic field is made stronger when we see solar flares and sunspots, and it can interrupt radio communications on the Earth in spite of the fact it's 93 million miles away. And the temperature inside the sun is actually up to 15 million degrees Celsius. So that's a uh, much higher than the, the surface uh, temperature by, you know, in other words, it's so hot we, uh, nothing could even get close to it. It generates solar winds that travel at 450 kilometers per hour. Uh, there's, there's three different layers of the sun, the photosphere, the chromosphere, the corona. It's classified as a yellow dwarf star. Uh, and uh, it's, you know, it's just amazing. It uses fusion rather than fission for its energy, and we've never successfully reproduced 
fusion uh, on any kind of scale here on Earth. Uh, the energy production is equal to 100 billion tons of dynamite every single second. Uh, and to think that this bright light with this kind of heat, this kind of power, looks pale in comparison to the glory of God ought to give us pause. It ought to make us think about to whom we are praying. And maybe we need to stop for a little bit longer in our prayers before we give God our laundry list of what we want to simply just glorify him uh, about how great he is. In verse 4, I wanted to talk about the horns because in King James it said he had horns coming out of his hand. The Lexham English Bible translates it and says his brightness was like the light. Flashing rays came out of his hand for him, and this is the covering of his strength. Habakkuk is basically saying that God's appearance at Mount Sinai would have been something like a sunrise. You know, first the heavens are are tinted with the early rays of the sun, then the earth is illuminated as a ball of fire comes over the horizon. Then as that ball of fire gets uh, toward the, the direct uh, area above us, uh, everything's flooded with brilliant, glorious light. And, uh, uh, and yet God's light was so much more than the sun that, you know, it's like a light that is so powerful you can't even see any shadows any longer because the light's so pervasive and it puts the sun to shame. And just as these rays of light streak across the morning sky, so rays flash from God's hand. Uh, I remember growing up in West Texas, and you get out on these flat roads and you drive uh, for a while and you would just often, if there was a cloud in the sky and the sun's behind the clouds, you see these rays shoot through the clouds. I always thought that was such a beautiful uh, sight. And and the rays all trace back to one location. And and this light that uh, was on top of Mount Sinai came from a single source, the hand of the Lord. He literally says the, the rays, or the, the Hebrew word can also mean horns, emanates from God as they do from the sun. Now, Interestingly, there's one person in history who got closer to the glory of God than anyone else, and I'm sure you know who that was, and that is Moses. Uh, Moses, it says in Exodus 34, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony were in the hand of Moses at his coming down from the mountain. And Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because of his speaking with him. And Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses to their amazement. The skin of his face shone, and they were afraid of coming near to him. Now, in other words, Moses had rays of light emanating from his face. It didn't just mean he, he had a ruddy complexion or his cheeks were in bloom or that he had a sparkle in his eyes. There were literally rays of light coming from his face because he had been bathed in the presence of God. Now, the, the picture you see there is Michelangelo's sculpture uh, of Moses. And, and before I tell you what's unique about this sculpture, I'll share with you one of my personal weird things that happened to me this week. And it looks like it might even be happening again to me this morning. It is, I think. Uh, last week, uh, I looked down at my hands. Uh, this was on Thursday. On Thursday, I looked down at my hands at one time and I thought, it must be cold in here. My hands are turning blue. And I just thought I needed to warm up, didn't give it any more thought, kept on working. And then I came to dinner uh, Friday night, and uh, uh, my kids are like, Dad, what's wrong with your hands? And I looked down, and the entire palms of my hands had turned blue. And, you know, normally parts of your body turning blue is not a good thing. Uh, but it was then that we realized that uh, 
I apparently was getting the dye off of a new pair of jeans that had not been pre-washed. I had ordered some special jeans in the mail, got them, put them on. I, I liked them. I'm wearing those uh, again uh, this morning, and I've had my hands in my lap, and guess what? The ends of my fingers are turning blue, and they have now been through the wash. So it's going to take a second wash to deal with this issue apparently, and so now I know why when you go buy jeans in the store, sometimes on the label it says pre-washed, and that's a good idea. Uh, but at any rate, uh, by being in contact with my jeans, I took on the characteristic of the jeans in that I turned blue like the jeans did. Well, in the same way, uh, Moses came down from the mountain, but he had been touched by the presence of God, and his face shone with actual rays of light coming out of his head. If you remember the story that after Aaron uh, and Israelites saw him and how his face shone, they were so scared of him that Moses had to put a veil over his face temporarily till this phenomena kind of died down on its own. If we take a little closer look at Michelangelo's statue of, uh, of uh, Moses, we'll notice that coming out of the top of his head, are two horns, because the Hebrew verb in this passage where it says he came down off the mountain, the Hebrew word that means to send out rays, the word send out rays is related to the Hebrew noun for horns, which is why the King James said he had horns in his hand, and the Lexham English Bible says rays came out from his hand, and so Michelangelo had studied that scripture, and he, he used these horns on the top of Moses' head to convey the idea of the light that was coming from him uh, at the time that he descended from Mount Sinai. Now, today, if you didn't know that and didn't know anything about the Hebrew, you would think, what in the world was Michelangelo thinking to put demon horns on top of Moses' head? But that's not what it's about. It's, it's a remembrance of the fact that there were these rays of light shooting from Moses after he came down uh, from on top of Mount Sinai. So there's a little artistic uh, lesson for you in education is that it has to deal with the fact that the Hebrew word to send out rays of light as he was doing after he came out of the presence of God is also can is related to the Hebrew word for horns. Now, God's nature or God's glory has a dual nature. It is both emanating, that is, it has these rays of light shooting out from it, but it's also concealing. Uh, you know what that's like if you've uh, ever been outside at night and somebody has an incredibly powerful flashlight and they accidentally or maybe intentionally, because people are a little mean sometimes, they shine this flashlight right in your eyes. Now, I have some very powerful flashlights. And uh, one of the things that I keep flashlights around for is if somebody breaks in my house in the middle of the night, I'm grabbing two things. I'm going to grab a firearm and I'm going to grab a flashlight. And that flashlight's going to be bright enough that it's going to do two things. They're going to see light radiating from somewhere, but it, the light's going to be so bright it will hide or conceal what's behind it. Well, the glory of God was so bright that it, it, it both emanates his glory but it veils his power. See, it's, it's easy to forget that light and warmth which showers the earth with blessing from the, the sun comes from a ball of fire that could consume the globe in a moment. And of course, there are those people who don't believe in creation, who believe everything that's been going on for 
billions of years, and they say that the sun has already lost half of its mass and it's getting smaller by the moment, and then eventually uh, it will run out of all the hydrogen that it's burning now, and then it will consume helium through fusion and uh, further fusion, and at that time it will superheat and become a dwarf star and a black hole, and it will consume the Earth, you know, and of course there, you know, this will happen billions or trillions of years from now, and, and of course, I think it's ludicrous when men assert that anything happened billions of years ago or or will happen billions of years in the future since mankind has been on the earth for so uh, short a time, you know, seven to 8,000 years at best. Uh, but God's power is hidden in his glory. Um, so his revelation is restrained lest it consume its beholders. Uh, it's interesting that in Deuteronomy 4.24 and also in Hebrews 12.29, the Bible says, for our God is a consuming fire. Um, God's power, his glory, uh, causes us to bow, or should cause us to bow in awe and wonder before the Lord. But it also maybe hides the fact of the fact that behind that, uh, that glory, behind that warmth, behind all the things for which we praise him, that he is also a consuming fire and that his wrath is, is terrifying. And Habakkuk actually mentions this terrifying might of God, that God's fully capable of exercising might. He's a terrifying God to those who oppose him. And, and he describes how that as God moved across the land, it was like a plague preceded him and a, a pestilence lay in his wake behind him. And the word pestilence here can either mean burning heat or bolts of fire. Uh, in other words, as, as he's picturing God coming upon Mount Sinai, it was like, you know, things are dying in front of them. And, and we remember some instances of pestilence in Scripture, like the ten plagues on Egypt. And I'm sure that was what was in Habakkuk's mind, since he's talking about how God brought Israel out of Egypt. This is what's in his mind, is these ten plagues. And, you know, I, I was just rereading the, about the ten plagues in my devotional reading, uh, you know, last week. And I, I thought it was really interesting to me. I had never noticed before that, uh, you know, every plague that they did, like Moses throws down or, or every demonstration of power that the, that the Egyptian, uh, people would try to uh, replicate it. For example, Moses throws down his stick on the ground. It turns into snake. Well, the Egyptian magicians throw theirs down on the ground and they turn into snakes, but then Moses snake eats all their snakes. Uh, and and then he picks it back up. So in other words, God's God's God always trumped the whatever the devil did. But uh, it got to the the end of the third plague, and and then after that, the magicians were no longer really able to replicate. They could turn uh, water into blood, but couldn't turn it back again. Uh, they 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 couldn't do anything to bring about the plague of of flies uh, that and they couldn't replicate that one that was the first one they were not able to replicate there were a lot of things they couldn't do but basically all these these plagues against the Egyptians, each one, by the way, was a specific attack against a specific Egyptian god. For example, they had a god they worshipped that was a frog god. Well, then he, he basically makes frogs overrun the land so that you couldn't even sleep without the frogs. And, you know, one of the questions I'm going to ask the Lord when I get to heaven is, uh, God, uh, Moses asked Pharaoh, when would you like me to get rid of the frogs? And and Pharaoh says, tomorrow. Well, I'm, I'm sorry, but if I had to sleep in a bed with frogs, I'd be asking you to get rid of them tonight. And uh, I had a friend that preached a sermon called One More Night with the Frogs. And I, I, he never answered my question, why Pharaoh would want to spend one more night with the frogs. I'd love to know that. Uh, but 
uh, I also think at other times, like uh, when Sennacherib attacked uh, from Assyria, attacked uh, Judah, that that 185,000 people were slain in one night by the angel of death in Second Chronicles 32, uh, or there were instances of pestilence that did it. Um, but the point here is that a lot of people take God too casually. They refer to God as, oh, the old man upstairs. Well, he's not the old man upstairs who's all sweetness and light. He's just as all-powerful as he is all-loving. And while he has grace and glory, they're coupled with might and majesty, and he deserves our reverence. Uh, Exodus 19, l listen to this accounting of Mount Sinai. I want you to hear this. And on the third day, when it was morning, there was thunder and lightning in a heavy cloud over the mountain, in a very loud ram's horn sound. And all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out from the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. And Mount Sinai was all wrapped in smoke because Yahweh went down on it in the fire. And its smoke went up like the smoke of a smelting furnace. And the whole mountain trembled greatly. And the sound of the ram's horn became louder and louder. And Moses would speak, and God would answer him with a voice. Uh, you know what? We need to learn to worship the creator rather than the creation. Habakkuk's vision of God coming from the distance and marching across the land rises to a climax. And having reached this place from which he would execute judgment, he stopped, he stood, and he shook the earth. His very presence caused uh, the rocks on the top of Mount Sinai to crumble into dust and, and pieces to roll down the hill. It was an earthquake. Uh, it says, by a mere glance at the nations, he caused them to tremble. The word means to leap in, in terror. Uh, even the framework of nature was shattered. There were these it, hills from old or age-old hills. Uh, it's almost the idea in Habakkuk's mind, hills that have been here since eternity uh, were crumbling uh, before the, the shaking on top of, of Mount Sinai. Uh, the firmest, these firmest constituents on the globe, these tall mountains were crumbling into dust. And, and then the top of the mountain turns into thunder and lightning and fire. And the, he pictures the smoke, not just a smoke, but, but like you'd see in a hot burning kiln. In other words, fire inside the smoke and, and amidst the shaking of the mountains. And, and he just brings out the idea that even though mountains crumble, God's everlasting ways go on. Um, out in Atlanta, uh, outside of Atlanta, Georgia, is a uh, hill that I, I only wonder how long it will take the Democrats to, to want to blast away because it's, uh, it's uh, a tribute to a uh, Confederate general and, and his staff, and it's carved into the side of a granite mountain. And the uh, interesting thing about that granite, it took them a long time to, to make this uh, carving in the side of a mountain, and it's a national park now. Um, but uh, the horse that uh, is being ridden uh, there, his mouth is big enough that I could park my 15-passenger family van inside the horse. It's how big this, this sculpture is. And a, a lot of dynamite had to be used in making that sculpture. Uh, but interestingly enough, they said that if every person that had ever lived on Earth since the beginning of time had carried away 20 pounds of granite, that more than 90% of that mountain would still be there. That's just how big the mountain is. And, and yet, here's an example, these, these formidable, solid granite mountains, and yet God's very word could blast them into pieces. 
So in other words, we need to not uh, need to not worship the Creator. And remember in Habakkuk two, verse nineteen twenty, it says, "Woe to him who says to the wood, wake up, and to a lifeless stone arise." Can he teach? Look, it's covered in gold and silver, but there's no breath within it. But Yahweh's in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Maybe we need to spend a little more time in prayer by reading a verse of scripture and meditating on it before we dare speak. Uh, most of the time when we pray, what do we do? We just give God our, our list of requests and give him our shopping list. And then we say, in Jesus' name, amen. And we expect everything to happen. But But real prayer should sense the majesty of God, should approach his throne carefully, should examine our hearts to make sure that there's nothing of which we need to repent before we dare ask God for anything. We need to honor the creator rather than the creation. Because listen, without God, our life is hopeless. Habakkuk 3.7 says, Under affliction I saw the tents of Cushan, the tent curtains of the land of Midian trembled. So there were witnesses to God's appearance at the Exodus and in the wilderness wanderings. Uh, were Cushan and Midian, nations that were on either side of the Red Sea, and they both saw the parting of the Red Sea, and they both saw the three million captives leaving Egypt, and, and God's wondrous acts threw the neighboring nations into terror, and they experienced distress and fear and anguish, and other nations also heard of God's mighty acts, and they were in fear. Uh, basically, everything God did struck fear and terror in the hearts of those who did not know him. And there's a reference here to the tents and dwellings, and the word curtains means the tent hangings. It, it seems to emphasize the precarious state. In other words, if, if Mount Sinai had its rocks broken up and rolling downhill, and there were quakes that basically caused bits of the mountains to turn into dust, what hope is there for those who are just in their tents, uh, under huddled under canvas? We don't have any hope. If, if, if God's very presence can cause the mountains to shake, we have no hope before the presence of God without Jesus Christ. So what should we have learned from this passage? And we're gonna we're gonna pick up next week and do the rest of his song of praise, but let's let's look at what we should have learned in our time together. God is merciful to the repentant, but he will vent his mighty wrath upon the ungodly. And both of those are part of the gospel. The the Bible is a two-edged sword. There is God's mercy and love on one edge of that sword, but there's also his wrath and justice on the other edge of that sword, and both are part of the gospel. And we love talking about how God is love, and he offers his mercy, and he loves you, but we also need to warn people that without Jesus Christ, they're in danger of eternal judgment. And, and I think we've gotten a little too comfortable in our perception of the merciful and loving God, and we've forgotten that he's also God of terrible might and power and wrath, who vents that wrath upon the ungodly. And this is why we have to have missions. And this is why we have to have missionaries. And this is why every time you give money to the church that we're using part of that money to support directly several missionaries who are sharing the gospel and causing people to turn to Jesus Christ. We also need to remember that the one to whom we're praying is not the man upstairs, but he's the one whose presence causes mountains to crumble into dust. His voice shakes the whole earth. His glory makes the sun seem pale. His wrath is righteous, who has all power over life and death, and who offers only one plan of escape from wrath, and that's to accept the forgiveness and pardon purchased for us by the death of Jesus Christ, his only begotten son on the cross at Calvary. God's nature demands our reverence, and this is what we need to do. Uh, now, next week, we're going to pick up and look at the next item for which to praise God, and that is to praise God for his actions. 
And we're going to come to the marvelous conclusion of Habakkuk chapter 3, which is one of my favorite verses in Scripture that basically says, even if everything goes wrong, I'm still going to praise God. And Habakkuk's going to say it far more eloquently than, than I just did. But let's, let's close our time together in the Lord's Word uh, in a prayer. And again, I thank Caleb for manning the station and making sure that we got this sermon out and got it recorded. But let's, uh, let's uh, pray as we close. Father, forgive us for taking you too casually. Yes, you are our Father. And yes, it is wonderful that we can sing what a friend we have in Jesus. And yet you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You are the creator of the universe. It is the light that emanates from your presence that makes the sun seem like vast darkness in comparison. As you who has meted out the heavens with the span of your hands and who weighs the mountains and hills like the fine dust on a balance, it is to you, the great and awesome and terrible God, immortal, invisible, God only wise, to whom we give honor and glory and praise both now and forever. Lord, help us in love to share the truth of the gospel with others, that not only does Jesus love those people so much that he died for them and rose again, but the truth that without Jesus Christ, they have no hope in eternity. Father, may you make us a church that is used to help rescue people from your mighty and terrible judgment by letting them enter into the fact that Christ took the judgment for our sins and for their sins on himself already. Lord, keep people safe this day. And Lord, I pray that you uh, would put a hedge protection around our families, both physically and spiritually. For